Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast. My name is Natalie Nahai, and in the second series, I'll be exploring our relationship with the living environment. These 10 intimate conversations will touch upon everything from psychology, sustainability, and human behavior, to political and economic systems, and the narratives we inhabit to make meaning of our place in this world. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the hive podcast. When I first decided to research this series, it was primarily with the intention of exploring resources that can help us understand and take positive action to mitigate the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. But in all of the reading and conversations I've had, while it's been clear that political and economic actions we take are absolutely of vital importance, I also came to understand that if we don't address some of the deeper, more psychological and emotional wounds that have given rise to the situation that we really won't be able to confront the pain and the enormity of what's happening or take the necessary actions that we need in order to heal it. That's why in this episode, I am really excited to be talking with Dr. Sharon Blackie, a wonderful award-winning writer and internationally recognized teacher whose work sits at the fascinating interface of psychology, mythology, and ecology. Her highly acclaimed books, courses, lectures and workshops are focused on the development of the mythic imagination, on the reclaiming of indigenous Western spiritual traditions and on the relevance of our native myths, fairy tales and folk traditions to the personal, social and environmental problems that we find ourselves facing today. Um, So Dr Sharon Blackie, thank you so much for joining me today to have this conversation. Thank you for inviting me, it's a pleasure. So um, I first came across your work last year, actually, when I picked up one of your beautiful books, The Enchanted Life, in a bookshop in London. And it's a book for those people who haven't heard about it, which explores folklore, stories that connect us to place and the mythic imagination. And I found it really deeply moving. I'm curious to ask, what moved you to write this book? Well, I had already written um, a book called If Women Rose Rooted. Um, which was subtitled A Journey to Authenticity and Belonging. And that was very much about the ways in which we as women have lost our voices and our own stories through the centuries. And looking back on um, some of our native traditions from the Celtic countries and from the UK as well and and parts of Northern Europe, it was very clear that way back in the day, and certainly in the pre-Christian era, but also um, intruding into it, women were very much associated with the land, you know, as guardians and protectors of the land. And that this was something that we had lost over the centuries as women's voices really had been suppressed and their stories discounted. So that whole book was about Mm. how we travel back in time to pick up on some of those old stories which portray us in that way. And very much about then our journey as women today, I believe, 
being um, to connect ourselves back to the land, back to place, to take up those ancient roles as guardians and protectors of the land. So I wrote that book, uh, and it's it's done um, remarkably well by by word of mouth. But I talked a lot about my own journey to you know a sense of belonging and rootedness in place. Um, and then after it, I'd written it. I started to get a lot of questions from readers about, well, okay, you know, I can see how you've done that, but how do I do it? You know, how do I, Mm. um, as an individual, probably coming from a very different background, living in very different places, how do I connect myself back into place? So it was really a kind of slightly more practical guide, I suppose, to some of the the things that I think are important about, about reconnecting ourselves back into this wonderful planet. Mm. I'm super curious about um, what you're talking about there with women's role in stewardship, connection and relationship with the natural world. And also with a lot of the young voices that we're seeing um, speaking up for the natural world. So, for instance, people who've heard of Greta Thunberg or in the States, um, Alex Ocasio-Cortez, who's proposing this green approach in political stewardship. Um, What are your thoughts about some of the ways in which many of these voices are coming from young women? I think we've, I don't know how it's arisen, um, but I agree with you that it has. You know, I remember when I was writing If Women Rose Rooted, um, there was a whole movement um, of people, Idle No More, for example, in Canada, you know, native um, indigenous voices, basically saying, well, our old traditions tell us that women were the protectors of the waters, were the protectors of the land, and now it's time Mm. for women to stand up. And that was a great inspiration to me um, to say, well, actually, you know, we were too. We so often in this part of the world look to other other parts of the world for yes. for inspiration you know we look to native americans native canadians or, or other indigenous people for for their stories but actually what people don't often realize is that that we have our stories and i think you know when people when women particularly look at the world at the moment and we we think that we have you know people dispute it but we have lived in a patriarchal society for the best part of 2000 years or more and the men have made a bit of a mess of the world mm. you know so it's not that we haven't been complicit it's not that we haven't had our own roles to play but it's a sense that we really that women f- are feeling increasingly that we really need to go back to some of those values and ways of being in the world that are thought of as typically feminine more creative more intuitive more caring more nurturing and to to find inspiration to become those things again And what are some of the stories that you feel really deeply connected to or inspired by from our Western Indigenous traditions um, that give voice to some of these roles that women can occupy to to protect uh, the land, the water, the animals, the species that that we're connected with? Gosh, there are lots of them. um, And many of them are (laughs) women always rooted, but I suppose maybe it's less of a story and more of a character. Mm. So in Ireland um, and Scotland, mythology tells us that the land was created and shaped by an old woman who was called the Cullioch. And she's really kind of the divine hag. She's like the old woman of the world. And she's portrayed in all of the stories and folklore as a wilderness spirit who protects wild animals. She's the guardian of wild nature. And folktale after folktale tells of her turning away the hunting men who were slaughtering too many of her deer or of her protecting the wild things she loves, turning back the axes which cut down the forest, um, tricking the priests and saints who want to steal away that very wild and elemental power. And so what I love about her is she will not also, she won't allow that very rich, earthy, ancient, fierce power 
of women and their fierce love for the natural world to be all boiled down and dished up all milk white and saccharine you know she doesn't do sermons and platitudes and homilies she's had more than enough of all of the preacher men and so hers is very much a, a, a ferocious love which faces down the hunter and says no you know just refuses not in my name and that to me is a profoundly inspirational character for me and I think for a lot of the women that I talk to about our old stories today. Wow, I love this idea of ferocious love and also just not the uh, the saccharine sweet kind of idea that we get of nature through, for instance, I can think of lots of Disney films or what have you that kind of create these anthropomorphized mm. um, kind of washed out versions of what nature might look like, whereas actually there's this, this wildness that we seem to deeply crave and yet be very disconnected from. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. From your perspective, what are some of the deepest wounds or intractable ideas that you feel have contributed to this this climate crisis that we find ourselves in, this lack of connection with the impact of, of our actions? Well, obviously, there are many of them. Um, but the one in which I suppose I specialise, if I can put it that way, um, is very much in this sense that we have become disconnected, not just from the land, but from our own our own traditions you know we don't really it seems to me have any sense of belonging to anything anymore in the west it's just as if we've forgotten who we are you know we don't have any sense of ancestry we don't have Mm. any sense of a lineage that we think is valuable uh that we would like to to clutch onto whereas the one thing that I think differentiates us from say many of the Native American, Native Canadian, Native peoples in other places is that they do have that sense of a lineage. So even if it's been broken by colonization or whatever, there is that sense of tradition of an earth-based tradition carrying through. And I think that we have lost that sense. We, we've forgotten who we are in a sense, you know, and so my passion um, is always about um, change beginning with the individual. So we can do all kinds of things to try and mitigate the impact, our own impact on the earth. But if we don't really change this very deep-rooted sense of who we are in this world, I don't think anything lasting is going to happen. So that's very much the way that I come at it, that sense of, of reminding people of who we are, of our ancestral traditions, of the very, very rich um tradition of of um not just folklore and folk tales but even philosophy in the west and and the ways in which it's always um connected us back into the the web of life on this planet i'm curious also within that because obviously in in recent years in particular with people traveling so much that many of us myself included come from quite a diaspora so i have roots in different places my family's crossed all over the world And so there are traditions from lots of different countries, none of which have kind of consolidated into one main route. So for people who who have these kind of split ancestries, what ways can we start to find um, to kind of reconnect with our sense of belonging in the world if, if we have these broken lineages? Are there sort of narratives that we can use, approaches that we can take to help create or reconnect with that sense of belonging? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of the work, although I'm based in Ireland, a lot of the work I do is um, with with North Americans, um, mm. who who are the greatest um, <laughs> readership and the, the the greatest population for all of the courses and workshops that I do. Interestingly, mm. precisely because I think there is this sense of having been uprooted and landing in a place which they don't feel belongs to them, um, and walking all over, you know, the stories of the native peoples um, that do occupy those lands and a sense of brokenness. But to me, it's it's 
it, it's, it doesn't matter which of your many ancestral lineages you choose to connect mm-hmm. with because, you know, we all have multiple ones, I think, in Europe these mm-hmm. days. But, but what I think happens is that if you connect with ancestral stories, you know, stories from your ancestral places, it doesn't matter which ones, as I say, what they do is they can kind of inform you about how to find the stories and a sense of belonging to the place where your feet are actually planted. So, for example, um, going back to the Kaliuk, this divine old woman who created and shaped the land, mm. you're not going to find the Ka- you're not going to find the Kaliuk in the Arizona desert. <laughs> you're not. You know, she's very imminent in this landscape. She's a creature of wet and wild places. And, and Irish deities were imminent in the landscape. They belonged to the landscape. You can't pick them up and extract them mm. uh, from it. But what you can do is by connecting into that sense of, oh, in my ancestral tradition, there was an old woman, um, an archetypal old woman who was a guardian and protector of the land. That can inform you about how to find the old woman archetype in the Arizona desert because there's an old woman everywhere. You know, if you really believe Jung's idea that that there is a collective unconscious, whether you think it's just for humans or for the whole planet, those archetypes are alive and they're present everywhere. And so I think that sense of, of uh, it's almost of, um, uh, a sense of, of, right, of having a right to connect with that kind of archetype from your ancestral traditions, a sense of, you know, this is ours. It, those stories can lead you to connect with the places where your feet are absolutely planted right now which I think is critically important because otherwise you know people spend too much time longing for an ancestral country that they're not actually living in Mm. and and Mm. then you're disconnected you're in your head you're not in your place yes or for instance you mentioned um indigenous traditions of of native peoples and we think of when we think about I don't know traditions that hold us to place we think of these other faraway lands of these distant cultures and and then there's there's the question of well is it okay for me to consider this as a guidance as a roadmap and the forgetting of our own spiritual traditions. Um, I think I suppose the question that I'd like to ask with all of these elements brought in and what you mentioned about Jungian's archetypes, uh, these all connect in different ways to this concept that you wrote so beautifully about in your book of the mythic imagination. Can you tell us what it is and why it's so important? Well, I think it springs from, just to say that it springs, it's a very old idea, and it springs mm. from the very old forgotten um, pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. And I'm not just talking now about Celtic otherworldly stories, but even the very soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece. And they're very rich and they're very complex and they're very beautiful. And they offer up not just a planet, but an entire cosmos in which everything is alive and has purpose and intentionality of its own. And they speak of a world to which every incarnated soul chooses to come for a reason, to fulfill its own unique calling and to offer up a a gift which can only be expressed through relationship with and participation in this animate world. So the mythic imagination in the way that I teach it is very much about the ability to see beyond the everyday and to see more deeply beyond this moment of our lives. So it's having a concept of what our own journey is in this life Um, how it might relate to the larger forces at work, how it might relate to the journeys of everything around us, you know, not just other people, but other animals, maybe to a rock, maybe to a river, to the whole planet. And that sense of developing our own unique, I always call it our own unique mythopoetic identity, you know, what we as individuals uniquely as souls bring to this earth. Because Plato and the ancient Greeks had this wonderful idea of the anima mundi, the soul of the world. Mm. And the idea of that is that, 
every we don't we're not the only ones who have soul you know within us but the whole planet has a soul that we contribute to that a rock contributes to that a river contributes to and so you have this wonderful idea of the anima mundi which literally is kind of like a web of life in which we need to replug ourselves and mm. jung said that that the imagination is like the structure of psyche of the human psyche and myth and story is the language of the psyche so what myth and story are doing working with the mythic imagination is very much about bridging us back into um the soul of the world if if that makes sense that's beautiful i love thinking about that as a as a concept and also it kind of it makes me think of the ways in which we speak about how humanity relates to the planet how we take our place here so for instance I think when you think about sky religions or patriarchal religions um, where you have one often um, male deity uh, and the way that that creates a sense of belongingness to something other, to something elevated that's just spirit and how Mm -hmm. the physical is made um, dirty or degraded, that there's this kind of binary perspective on what's good and what's bad, up and down, etc. All of these things that, that maybe there's something in that of a returning to the knowledge that we have come from the earth, we've peopled from the earth, that we haven't kind of been dropped here from some alien species. And so right. it's a very, very basic premise that we seem to have lost or are in denial of. Um, it's really curious to me that that seems to be the case for many of us. Yes, and I think, you know, again, you can trace this back through the history of Western philosophy all the way back to Plato, who had many wonderful ideas and very rich, beautiful ideas, but who I also often in my worst moments hold largely responsible for the entire downfall of western civilization i mean that's not to you know not to exaggerate or anything uh, but really he did i mean he was the one who who began this terrible split between um, the physical world of the senses which he believed was was a bit of an illusion and that you know the the intellectual world the rational world the transcendental later on was where it was all happening and so there was then this this strange sense where the natural world became a bit of a backdrop for human activity you know it didn't Mm. have very much intentionality in its own right and I think what we need to do now is circle back to those beautiful ideas that the ancient Greek philosophers had, which tie in with our, our own um, mythologies um, and ideas in, in uh, Celtic countries and in Western Europe um, about the soul's journey, about the world being alive and pick back up you know, that sense of connection to the land, that, that stories, that some of these myths, some of these archetypes, they're attached to the land, they're attached to this planet. They very much rise out of this planet. All of our Celtic um, deities, um, beings, are very much a product of the land. You know, they're imminent in the landscape. They can't be extracted from them. So that, to me, is where we, in a, in a very, very simplistic way, I understand, but that's where we went wrong in splitting off and valuing only the transcendental and not seeing anymore the sacred in the land that we actually walk upon. So with this idea of the stories and the sacred being connected to the land, what might it mean to restory the earth or place where we're living? How might that happen? I think it's really about approaching our places as populated with other beings, you know, Mm. whether it's a rock being or a a crow, um, Mm. who, like us, have their own stories and purpose. And if you think about it, right into the present day, uh, Western, uh, well, all European folk tales and fairy tales show us that kind of a world. 
you know, all the best fairy tales in the European tradition are about negotiating with the land or with the mm. wild, both inside mm. and outside of ourselves. And, and they're stories which show us what it might be like to inhabit a world in which humans are fully enmeshed, you know, where animals always have something to teach us and trees and plants can save us or cure us. And there's always a wise old man or a woman waiting in the dark woods. Um, mm. You know, you go and ask a crow for advice because it, it has a different kind of wisdom. It has different kinds of knowledge that we don't have that we need. So I think I think part of it is just understanding that we live in a in a world that is full that is populated with archetypes with myths with stories and finding the ones that are connected to the places where our feet are planted because you know if we look at a crow we have to see a crow as well okay it's a bird it's a physical animal it has certain behaviors it has certain breeding characteristics it has certain ecosystems that it thrives in and it doesn't but kind of layered on top of that is this archetypal sense of crowness that we all Mm. recognize you know who live with crows and so it's it's kind of like there's a a dreamscape um Mm. embedded in the the physical world. I always call it falling into the land's dreaming because that's how I see it. That this is, it's a little bit like that that concept of the Celtic other world, you know, it's very much embedded in this world, but it's a different way of seeing it, a different way of experiencing it. And so to me, restoring our places is very much about allowing that, uh, being open to that uh, rather mysterious um, overlay and twining of the, the mythic, uh, dream world uh, with uh, with the physical, the world of our physical senses that we actually see. Mm, I love listening to you speak. This is so inspiring. <laughs> um, it was so nice to spend some time in your book, in your world, in this in this myth- mythic imagination, in this dream space. Um, and one of the tensions that I found in myself, that I imagine many of us might face, is that as we explore these different, for me, very alluring, very seductive, very rich. Um, imaginative spaces which for me actually feel very vibrant and alive and vivid I also feel the the cultural societal part of myself that's been trained to observe in an analytical way to be skeptical to be separate to be disconnected autonomous all of these things I also feel a great tension with that part of me undermining the sacredness or the profundity of the experience I'm having and this really difficult dance that is played out between my desire and longing for the sacred, for the mythic, for the the more than human, um, which feels very, very vivid and alive, and the flip side, which is, well, how can you give credence to this? How can you live in this play space, this imaginative space? Um, how do you how do you find a way to allow these parts to be there, but then dwell in the more vibrant, mythic, layered, storied? world i think to me it's about recognizing that there are various ways of seeing the world and perhaps they're all equally valid but what we've done over the past few centuries is we've only valued one way of seeing the world which is this very empirical scientific way of seeing the world now i went into science um, studied psychology and neuroscience with an all arts background and then came back to the arts again so i have looked at both (laughs) ways of viewing the world and I think it's really important one of the reasons why I don't like to think of harking back to old traditions 
um, uh, in a dogmatic way is we've learned a lot of things in the past 2000 mm. years you know mm. some of them have been really bad and some of them have been really good and useful and we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. we have to accept that some ways of saying that are scientific are very very valuable it's only when we say we can only be there can only be one <laughs> true way of seeing the world that we yes. get into deep trouble and so to me these are different ways of seeing the world the imaginal is one way of seeing the world the physical kind of more empirical way is another way of seeing the world what's interesting though is the ways in which we have we have been taught to believe that the imaginal is not real yes and that's yeah. part of the the breakdown i think and you know if you go back through time both to plato um, and before him in in um, ancient greece if you go back to the ancient sufi traditions they had a very strong concept of this world of a third world, if you like, well, they actually had lots, but let's just stick to three for now, um, of a third world, which occupied the space somewhere between the physical world that we perceive with our senses and the intellectual world, the mental world that we imagine goes on inside our own head. And in between those worlds, they said, was a third world, which um, um, a French theologian called the mundus imaginalis, the imaginal world. And this is a world in which the imaginal lives. It has independent existence. So stories live there. Um, archetypes live there. You know, kind of Jungian archetypal characters, beings. Uh, synchronicities come from there. And these mm. things have an independent real existence. Um, they're no different from, you know, the, the intellectual world or the physical world. And, you know, we always get this idea that we make stories up. Well, we don't. They live there. And if we're very lucky, they'll happen to us. <laughs> and so, you know, we've forgotten that that was our old ancestral wisdom, that, that these things are alive and real and that that we have to f remember ways of communicating, interacting, being in relationship with them. We've been taught that it's all that it's all made up. And that's that, I think, is one of the most broken things that we have accomplished over the past 2000 years. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And yeah, when I think about the language that we use to discourage children, for instance, from using this powerful tool, their imagination. We say, oh, it's just your imagination. We're very um, dismissive, we diminish it. And then when I think about, for instance, all of the things that we have around us, the microphone that I'm using to speak with you, the table that I'm sitting at, where else did they stem from if not from some blueprint that stems from the creativity of the imagination yeah. made manifest? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's fascinating. Um, I'm also curious, actually, to ask, I know you wrote about it in your book, but I would love it if you would share it with us, uh, your favourite story or fairy tale and why? Well, um, I have a lot. I really have a lot <laughs> of favourite fairy tales, but one of the, the one that's really stayed with me since I was very young is Hans Christian Andersen's version of The Wild Swans. Now, I'm not normally a Hans Christian Andersen fan because he, was a very, he had a very Christian, unforgiving um, patriarchal mm. morality, which yeah. is seen in stories like The Red Shoes, which I just abhor. But there's something very beautiful about The Wild Swans. And this is a story, briefly, where... Um, uh, a wicked stepmother transforms a young girl's brothers into swans um, and she is told that she can save them um, only if she remains silent um, for I think something like seven years it depends very much on the version of the story and then she must <laughs> spin um, she must um, pluck nettles with her bare hands and spin 
fibre and create shirts for her brothers. And then if she throws the shirts over her brothers, they'll turn back into men again and, you know, everything will be fine. And so this is actually a remarkable story about, you know, the parallels of the loss of women's voice. You know, she has to do this uh, while remaining silent. So, so she's almost burnt at the stake as a witch by some particularly unpleasant Christian bishop. Um, mm. She has to endure the blistered fingers you know, because she has to pluck the the stinging nettles with her bare hands. And that sense of of just endurance for the sake of love, um, you know, love of her brothers for the sake of setting something back to rights again, which is out of kilter, um, Mm. it really stayed with me very, very strongly as a child. And I think, you know, what she had to do was, was negotiate almost with the nettles. You know, she had to live in a fairly wild way for a lot of that time. Um, and, and it really, really captured my imagination because it was such a reflection of things that I was grappling with, I guess, as a, as a child and, and as a teenager. It's a very potent image, this idea of just having to be silent and, yeah, damage yourself in order for the pursuit of some greater good. Yeah, and if you think about it, you know, a lot of the stories um, which talk about transformation in women are fairly, um, are fairly uh, extreme. You know, we have lots of stories of dismemberment. Uh, you know, mm. skins are stolen, fingers are mm. chopped off, the, the handless maiden, hands are chopped off. It's, a, it's a, a, initiatory experiences for female characters in fairy tales are often very very extreme and and involve a lot of um, profound physical damage it's really interesting as a reflection you know what that means uh, the ways in which we see ourselves or the ways in which people have seen us you know to to tell those stories Mm. actually makes me think of a film I don't know if you watched it Maleficent with uh, and she's this wonderful kind of dark mythical being with horns and her wings are chopped off by her lover Um, yeah and then she follows her stories. I think there is, it seems to me that there is this, this thirst, this desire for, um, for storytelling, for folktelling. Um, but, it, but it's kind of expressing itself in a different way. So, for instance, if I think of the Marvel comics that are really popular, X-Men and um, you know, Pullman's books now being made into um, a, a, a filmic series. Like, do you think that there is a hunger that is starting to become more expressed in popular culture for these sorts of stories I do actually and it's always difficult to know whether it's always been there but people were too Mm. afraid for whatever reason to talk about it and Mm. it's you know and we're perceiving that it's okay now or whether it really is a big resurgence I think it's probably a little bit of both Um, and I think that people believe that we are all out of options you know there's nowhere else to go really um other than into the stories but but the the thing about story you know when I was practicing as a psychologist which I did for a number of years uh, it became very clear to me very quickly that a lot of the the classical um, methods um for supposedly creating change in therapeutic environments are really quite boring you know and people mm. don't really find them very interesting <laughs> things like cognitive behavioral therapy very effective but boy you know you, you've got to be motivated because it's not very interesting <laughs> (laughs) Whereas if you can work with story, if you can capture people's imagination, you have got them. If you can show them through story a different way of being in the world, you know, a different level of approaching the world, if you can show them what it might be like so that they actively long for it, then you've you've done all of the work. You've you've got Mm. them. They're going to change. And, you know, that's the power of the imagination and of the mythic imagination. It's just, it's the best way, I think, 
of creating transformation. And the classic thing with climate change, and I'm not the first to have said this, is that we are not going to change people with frightening statistics. You know, we might no. change some, we might moderate a little bit of behavior, but what we have to do is make people long for a different way of being in the world and a different way of interacting with the world yes. to show them that it's so rich and it's beautiful. And to fall in love with it again. Yes, absolutely. So I'm wondering with that, when, when you're talking about these these longings for being in the world in a different way or relating to the world in a different way um, and also about the power of the imagination to create these stories that connect us more profoundly, more emotionally. Um, I wonder also if you see a connection here with what appears to me at least to be a rise in interest in Western cultures into, for instance, animistic or shamanic practices which work very much with what some might describe as um, archetypes or traditional mythologies yeah. and things like this. Yes, I mean, to, to me, it's all part of the same thing. Uh, I mean, the, you know, I, I am a little bit um, concerned about an overuse of the the concept of, of um, shamanic as a, as a descriptor for some of this work. But I look at it from um, a Jungian perspective, from a depth psychology perspective, and the practices that I teach in my courses and workshops on um, cultivating the mythic imagination arguably are similar. Um, it's just that, you know, they come from a slightly different perspective. And it's very much about finding ways to hold conversations with the imaginal. Mm. Uh, you know, so if we we have to begin with the premise that, that these things do have an independent existence. If people can't accept that, then it's just all in our heads and it's not very interesting. But if you believe that somewhere in that imaginal world are characters, um, you can call them deities and gods and goddesses if you want to, uh, that there are beings, that there are energies, I don't really know, whatever language you want to use, who are there, who have have wisdom that we don't who have knowledge that we ha that we don't who perhaps are there sometimes offering help and guidance um, then how do you enter into a conversation with these imaginal creatures and there are all kinds of uh, different techniques you know from Jungian um, um, active imagination techniques to working with personal mythology and myth making to working with fairy tale imagery journeying dream work uh, land-based connection practices all of which are designed in a much less controversial way perhaps than calling it shamanic all of which are designed to open up a conversation between us and the imaginal so that we can actually remember that there is not just this physical world that we see around us that there is this rich and remarkable multi-layered web of life and we're missing out on it if we don't do this work mm. so with that with that in mind if we start to work with that premise how do you feel we can begin to weave new stories and visions of a different future that we can move towards creating together? Um, by choosing very carefully the stories that we tell about ourselves and the world and, and our place in it. Um, uh, briefly, you know, every culture... Every culture has stories that it tells about itself, cultural stories about what matters, you know, to, to the people within that culture, what the, the kind of like foundational mythology, if you like. So some of the foundational mythology of the West has got a bit lost. You know, it's kind of like this myth of progress that we must always have more, 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 more. We must do every more of everything from from year to year or the very heroic mythology that we've we seem to have adopted, particularly in the West, where it's all about the individual greatness and overcoming and slaying dragons and all of that malarkey. Mm. Um, 
and uh, clearly that that mythology, that foundational mythology that that is still uh, there at the moment is is broken. It, it's not serving us anymore, and it's certainly not serving the planet. Now, Jung was an interesting man, and he said that when the the foundational mythology of a culture ceases to serve, you know, when it gets broken, um, we kind of fall out of myth. But the myth making capacity, then he said, resides in individuals. It resides in individuals. So individuals then are the ones who start to think, well, okay, what what is the story I am? Li- you know, what is the story I want to live? Uh, who do I want to see myself as? You know, so for example, the story that I want to see is myself fully plugged into this web of life, to this world of the imaginal as well as the physical, so that so that I feel that I. I am walking in awareness of being part of the of the world soul of the anima mundi, not just some um, creature plonked on a planet which doesn't have any agency of its own, which is just a backdrop for you know for my um, intent on achieving transcendence. So, so I think really it's a question of of just not playing those games anymore, just not telling the old stories about how we must be heroic and and wonderful. But but going back to some of the the the. The, the older stories still, the ones which tell us about compassion, about not taking too much from the land, mm. uh, about living in balance and harmony with it, about being a part of it, that are about community rather than the individual. Uh, so many of our folk and fairy tales, you don't even go back to have to go back to the very ancient mythology. So much of our fairy tales are about that. You know, there's a wonderful story which is everywhere. Everywhere I've ever seen has this story about a magical cow, the cow of plenty, who will give anybody who needs it a pail of milk. And she just keeps on giving, keeps on giving till somebody comes along and milks her into a pail after pail after pail because they put a sieve under her rather than a bucket. Mm. You know, so she keeps on giving Mm. because it's never full. The the sieve is never full. And then once she realizes what's going on, off she goes and she's never seen again. And that's the end of that. So we have these wonderful stories that tell us about not taking too much, you know, and there's nothing to stop us from telling those stories again. Tell those stories to our kids. Tell them around the Mm. dinner table, you know, just, just bring them alive. And if we feed the stories they get stronger. You know, we, we have to choose the stories that we want to be strong in this world. Uh, and that to me is the, 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 key, the key, whatever else we do, if we do that, I think we stand a bit of a chance. That sounds very powerful advice. With that um, in mind, what, what is your biggest concern for the future? I think that we continue to forget who we are. I, you know, that we continue to just live in this alienated way this really sad uh Mm. way and it is it's you know you can get angry at the way people live but it's actually a terrible thing you know if you look at the the extent of um, anxiety depression and other other mental illnesses in the world today that is because we have lost this sense of belonging to this beautiful animal earth we we don't see ourselves as part of it we don't we just see ourselves as, as cut off and so that my biggest concern is that we continue to do that we continue to forget who we are and so that really is the focus of, of all of my work is in, in trying, whether it's writing or workshops or whatever it might be, is in showing people that this whole other world out there, this whole other way of being in the world that isn't dependent on anybody else. It's not dependent on great social skills or, you know, you don't have to be a particular kind of person, but you, you, can, you can plug yourself back in. And so with the plugging back in for, for individuals, for this being within each of our reach, um, in an ideal world, what vision are you working towards achieving with this work? Well, I think that would be it, to be honest, that, you know, that, that everybody would 
would see themselves not not as alone, um, not just mm. as even connected to other human beings and to to their tribe or their society or their their little social group or their family, but but that we would kind of have this wonderful picture of this glowing web of life of which we're just a part, where we. We really want to know what a crow thinks about what's going on uh, in the world. You know, we 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 really do because they 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 know something different. Um, where we just see ourselves as not just here um, as some kind of great cosmic coincidence, but as mm. a soul that that chose to come here to give a particular gift to the world, whatever it might mm. be. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose. You know, it's not to to save the world. It's just to be, to, to be a particular unique expression of the world and to recognize that that's what we're to do, to think about our sense of calling, you know, what is that unique gift? How can we display it in the world? And, and that to me, that's my vision, really. I think if, if that could happen, if people could just remember, literally remember who they are, I think a lot of other things would, would begin to fall into place. And without that sense of um, of purpose, if you like, I, I really don't know that anything that we do will have any um, lasting traction. Mm. So, if you were to give maybe one single action that we can take today to remember who we are, to reconnect with, or discover perhaps our sense of calling in this world, um, what might that action be? Where might people start? I suppose I don't see it so much as an action, um, mm. as as just cultivating a different way of, of being, a different way of being open, um, a different way of, you know, going out and, and sitting with a rock, you know, <laughs> and seeing, seeing what comes. Um, and I'm not talking about listening, hearing voices or seeing visions or any of that kind of thing, but just really being in our places whether they're wild places or city parks or whatever just looking around us seeing what else is going on if you look at a crow i always use crows because everybody knows crows so um uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we 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 look at a crow and what it is to us and what it is in in our mythology but you know what are we in a crow's mythology what is a crow seeing when it's looking at us so that ability mm. just to step back from our intense um um, obsession, self-obsession, uh, mm. and just see the rest of the world from a rock to a crow as having its own its own purpose, its own intentionality. So, to me, again, as I say, you know, I don't see that necessarily as an action, but just a kind of shift in perception, a shift in the way that we perceive the world, that we look at the world. And if we just start there, I think many, many, many things um, begin to happen for us that are quite magical. Mm. It comes back to that whole mm. concept of enchantment because enchantment really isn't magical thinking. You know, I say this in the book, it's not about magical thinking. It's about a real profound sense of embodied belonging uh, to a world which is vibrant with it with its own life. Profound sense of embodied belonging. I love that. That's beautiful. And um, for anyone listening, if you want to dive in more, I really couldn't recommend The Enchanted Life enough. It's such a beautiful read. Um, Sharon, if people want to find you, I know that you're on Twitter at Sharon Blackie and also that your website is SharonBlackie.net. Um, are there any other things or resources that you feel might be useful to point people towards? Yeah, I'm not much of it. I am on Twitter, but you'd, you'd hardly know it. Um, I suppose I, I'm a little bit more active on um, on Facebook. My Facebook page is Sharon Blackie Myth Makings, all one word. We also have a Facebook group attached to that page called uh, mm -hmm. Cultivating the Mythic Imagination, which is a forum you know, for people to be able to talk about 
some of these issues and engage in discussion with other people who are struggling in exactly the same way. So uh, that might be a good place to start. And, and on my website, there are a whole list of workshops and events and talks and all of that. The usual stuff that, uh, that we all do. And also your podcast, the Head School podcast. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very occasional thing, I have to say at the moment, when time permits. But um, but yes, that is um, that is on that website too. Okay, fantastic. So in the show notes, I will also link to your three books, um, The Long Delirious Burning Blue, If Women Rose Rooted, and The Enchanted Life. Um, yeah, there's another one coming out in September as well, ooh. which um, which is Foxfire Wolfskin um, and other story and other tales of shapeshifting women. So this is um, kind of like fairy tale reimaginings. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Do you have a date for that, or just the month for the time being? Uh, it's September. I can't remember the exact date, but it's coming out in September. Okay, well, I'm going to pre-order that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much um, for joining me in conversation. I've really, really enjoyed this, and I'm sure others. It's been will. lots of fun. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.